Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It is a given now that new technology has changed the way people in general receive information or get information or the volume of information that people can have. But what has this done for research in both sciences and humanities? Today on New Books and Technology, we have Eric Meyer, one of the authors. It is a given now that new technology has changed the way people in general receive information or get information or the volume of information that people can have. What has this done for research in both sciences and humanities? Today on New Books and Technology, we have Eric Meyer, one of the authors of a new book that deals exactly with this question. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The book is Knowledge Machines, Digital Transformations of the Sciences and Humanities. One of the first things we like to do on New Books and Technology is have the author talk about themselves. So who is Eric T. Meyer and uh, what do you do? So um, I'm an associate professor at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is a department at the University of Oxford. Mm -hmm. We are relatively new in Oxford terms, although not that new anymore. So the Oxford Internet Institute was set up in 2001, so mm-hmm. it's been around nearly 15 years. And we have, it's a very multidisciplinary organization devoted to understanding the changes that technology is bringing in the modern world, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around the internet, but also other technologies as well. And we have... Uh, there's some faculty here. We've got a master's program and a doctoral program, and I'm the director of graduate studies for the department. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a lot of like-minded people interested in technologies and the ways that it's changing the ways we think, the ways we interact, the ways we work with each other, the ways uh, that we know things, which is what is sort of behind this book that we've written. Mm-hmm. So, so that leads into my next question: is why knowledge machines? So it's interesting. We it took us forever to come up with a title for this book. We were going back and forth between lots of different things, and Ralph, my co-author, would like one thing, and I'd like a different thing, and our editor at MIT Press would like something else entirely. Um, so, so we had you know a dozen different titles, none of which that we really liked. And when we finally came up with Knowledge Received, it was the first one that we all sort of thought about and thought, you know, this really does get at the point. So what we're talking about in the book is um, the fact that technologies in the form of computers, the algorithms that run on them, the networks that tie them together, are really becoming integral to the ways that knowledge is created today. Mm-hmm. And that these new machines are themselves becoming uh, a, a part of our knowledge creation system. So it, it's, it's more than just um, typewriters. Yeah, so, so academics have always had to write things down. And, you know, we had quill pens, we had typewriters. Um, the computers that we have are more than just simply typing machines, that they do a lot for us that are helping not just to do things faster and 
um, maybe prettier and, and more efficiently, but they're also opening up new realms of exploration and knowledge because of their ability to do things like work with large amounts of data, to visualize things in new ways, to visualize things next to each other that could never be seen next to each other again and I could, before, and I can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the idea that um, these constellations of people and machines are part of the growing um, uh, network of knowledge around the world is why we um, all were very happy with this idea of knowledge machines, is that the, the machines are part of the knowledge cycle themselves. Mm-hmm. So are you, is one of the main arguments, I'm going to go all McLuhan-esque, is one of the main arguments of, of the book that the medium is the message or the technology is, you know, uh, just extending ourselves? Well, so, so to a certain extent, yes. And my, my co-author who isn't with us, Ralph, he's one of the world's um, unrepentant technological determinists. And he, uh-huh. would say abs- he would say absolutely that the machines are driving what we're doing. Um, I, I, don't, I disagree with him on that to a certain extent. It, we, we disagree on a lot of things. And, um, it, in an earlier version of the book, we actually had a part of a chapter where we sort of outlined our disagreements, but then we managed to fight enough to get to the point where we mostly agreed on things. <laughs> but um, from my point of view, uh, it's not so much that machines cause things to be different, but that they enable people to make a new range of choices and enable people to do a new kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so I wouldn't go so far as to give the machines themselves sort of agency to do things on their own. Sure. Um, you know, the, the internet, for instance, isn't anything unless people actually put content on it and communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. If people go away, the internet is meaningless and pointless and does nothing. It's, it's the people doing things with it that make it actually interesting. So likewise, with these um, technologies of knowledge, it's not just the fact that they exist and can do things big, but that it enables people to think in new ways, come up with new kinds of problems that they can address, mm-hmm. and to do that in new creative ways that they wouldn't have been able to think of before. And one of the, the creative ways or the newer ways that you talk about in the book, you, you call it e-research. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could like, uh, perhaps explain that concept. So e-research is, grows out of a period of concerted funding in the United States and the United Kingdom um, in the first decade of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. There was a program in the UK called the e-science program, e-science. Mm-hmm. And then there was the e-social science program. And in the United States, this was generally fell under the term cyber infrastructure. And e-research was an attempt to get all those different things together. So it's science and it's social science and it's what's going on, what's called the digital humanities, mm-hmm. under one broad um, umbrella that is research that's enhanced and enabled by technology. Now, the, there's been a lot of disagreement over the years of what the E and the e-research actually stands for. Um, it's pretty widely agreed that it doesn't stand for electronic. Okay. Um, it might stand for enhanced. It might stand for... Um, extended. Uh, I don't even really know in my own mind anymore what it stands for. <laughs> it, but, but I think it's pretty widely agreed amongst the people who do this that e-research is different enough from what research traditionally is that it, it at least for the time being merits a new label. Maybe in 20 years' time, as we sort of say in the book, when everybody's doing what would be called e-research today, 
Well, then it doesn't need a different title. Then it just is research. If everybody's doing everything that involves technology um, intimately, mm-hmm. so so the term could easily become less relevant in five, ten, fifteen, twenty years time. Mm-hmm. So, and and e research you're talking about um, in in the book is, um, I guess, uh, facilitated through a particular kind of infrastructure that's been built up. Am I correct? So you talk about the internet as infrastructure. Right. So, so the internet is really a, a part of this infrastructure that we are talking about. Now, in the early days of the research, there was a move toward doing all this work on what's called the grid. Mm-hmm. And the grid is, was invented by people in the physics arena largely to do things like dealing with all that data that's coming off the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So the grid would do things like distribute that data across a bunch of different computers and a bunch of different storage systems to deal with these massive amounts of data. Interestingly, though, when the social scientists moved into this space and the physicists said, oh, well, you should use the grid, the social scientists and humanities people said, well, we don't really need the grid. It doesn't work the way we think. It doesn't. We don't have problems that really need to be parallelized in that same way. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, we don't really see the need for a specialized network of computers in the same way that the grid is, but the internet for us is a good way to share data, to, to make data available, to um, put data in the cloud, to grab data from things like Twitter or uh, or Facebook, and be able to do things on a level that on a, on a scale that we hadn't really previously anticipated being able to do. Mm-hmm. It, it used to be the case that social scientists had very um, small data sets. Sure. If, if we had a thousand responses, it was good. And we, we were scrabbling after every little bit of data we, we could possibly get our hands on. Mm-hmm. Well, now in some areas, we've got massive amounts of data that are flowing around. If we're interested in human behavior, more and more human behavior is taking place online. I think we can all agree on that. And as we do that, we leave traces. Now, this has been in the news a lot because of some of the... Uh, nefarious uses to which these traces are put. Right. Um, but from a social scientist's point of view, we can start to understand some very interesting things about human behavior by looking at these sorts of traces and then extrapolating from that to bigger questions of what we can really understand about the human condition. Mm-hmm. So is, is there a fundamental difference between in the ways I should say that uh, traditional bench science or, or uh, natural sciences use the infrastructure and now how the social sciences and humanities use this infrastructure to do e-research? Well, there are differences and there are always disciplinary differences in how we do things and how we do things. So um, humanities scholars, for instance, they are in the book quite a lot. We've done a lot with digital humanities. One of the things about the humanities is that in some ways their, their use case was very clear. There are digitized, well, there are resources sitting in libraries all around the world, right? Um, Most of those are quite difficult to get to. Many of them are rare and and fragile. When those started to become digitized, particularly in the first part of the 21st century, uh, that opened up the possibility for humanity scholars to not just reduce their travel because they didn't have to go to all these libraries and archives because they suddenly had a digital version they could bring up on their screen. Mm-hmm. It opened up new possibilities. So, for instance, one thing we talk about in the book is this thing called the Digital Archive of Medieval Music. 
And one of the goals of that was to digitize a bunch of medieval manuscripts, as one might guess. But now, instead of having to go to one archive in Vienna and a different archive in uh, London and a different archive in the U.S. someplace, now you can bring up a different version of the same medieval song from these three different archives on your screens in front of you on your desk. And rather than having to rely on your notes and your memory from when you were at that different archive two months ago, you can now see them all next to each other um, as if you were being able to set them all on the table, which, of course, would never be allowed. You would never be allowed to take those manuscripts to one place. But now you've got them all in one virtual place on your screen, and you can start to see interesting things that would be very difficult to see otherwise, which is you know, this version is slightly different than that version, or they've changed the tune in this version, or the, the um, whoever transcribed this one appears to have made a mistake or has added an embellishment. So you can start to ask them questions on, as a humanities scholar once you've got these digital manuscripts available to you. So in some ways, the humanities had a very easy use case, right? Mm-hmm. I can get lots of really cool primary materials right here on my desktop computer that otherwise I would be very either difficult or impossible for me to gain access to. Mm-hmm. In the social sciences, it was a little harder in the early days to see exactly what the network communications and network data would do for the social sciences. That's been changing a lot in the last few years as we start to see things like people study Twitter and, and, uh, and Facebook and so forth, as I mentioned. But... Um, I think one of the things that is really the message of what we've written here is that it's changed our expectation of rather than being sole scholars sitting away working in our offices and doing um, our own little thing, we now start to think of sharing. We share data, we share uh, our our ideas, we share authorship. So if you look at authorship over the last 50 years, the number of authors on papers is increasing. Uh, that's clear in all disciplines, including the humanities, where authors tend to be fewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the social sciences, the number of authors per paper increasing indicates to us that people are working more in teams. And one of the reasons they're working more in teams is not just because they, they want to do that and because it gives them advantages, but also because it's now possible to work in teams and to work with people, to publish papers with people you've ever, never actually met face-to-face. Mm-hmm. As you share not only an interest, but you can share data, you can share writing responsibilities in something as simple as Google Docs, um, or by sending Word documents back and forth. And you can have communication such as we're having here via Skype and be able to really reduce that distance and open up new possibilities for collaboration that really weren't there before. Mm-hmm. So just a, a question, why the focus on academic research? So um, partly because... It's what I focused on for a long time, so it's <laughs> my area of expertise. One of the um, uh, you know, examples of the book is from my early work with, with marine biologists who study whales and dolphins, and so we'll talk about that more later if you want. But I think one of the things about um, this era is that whereas academic researchers have largely been seen as you know, a bit distant from from the world and in their ivory towers, we're seeing that breaking down more and more in this era of digital research and digital knowledge sharing. And so it's not just being a bit of academic navel-gazing to study what's going on in academia these days, I think, because now, say for instance, if you are diagnosed with some disorder by your doctor, Mm -hmm. 
what did you do in the past? You, if you were lucky, you might be able to get some support in your local community. Um, you might have been able to, uh, uh, you know, find some popular uh, articles to be able to help explain what's going on or some pamphlets. But now you can actually, without any difficulty at all, go onto Google Scholar and tap into the original research that academics are producing. And we're starting to see more and more people who are taking control of things like their own health conditions by learning how to read that academics are writing. And so that that distance between what's going on in academia and what's going on in society are, are breaking down in certain areas. Also, if we look at something like big data, which we talk about a little bit in the book, and we've been talking about a lot in our research lately, big data really breaks down these boundaries because big data is often generated in things like big businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and business and social scientists previously haven't tended to collaborate a lot, but suddenly there's lots of reasons to collaborate. Not only do the social scientists have a lot of interest in what things like um, cons- uh, consumer loyalty cards have to tell them about consumer behavior for an economist, for instance, mm-hmm. but also the businesses are more interested in the kinds of advances that, that academics are making in understanding big data, working with big data, um, moving beyond simple analytics that they might have in-house ex- expertise to do, but they don't yet have the ability to do more sophisticated things. So I think that the um, boundaries are potentially shifting and lowering this barrier between what happens in academia and what happens in the public more and more in a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. So you talk about the transformation of knowledge um, mm-hmm. in the book. And I was wondering, what, perhaps you could explain what you mean by that. Because when we think about knowledge and we think about research, sometimes we connect them. And you talk about that a bit in the book. But Knowledge, perhaps, some people would think, comes from research or data, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tricky concept. And I, um, there's a whole literature on knowledge management that I don't pretend to be an expert in. Um, so I'm the first one to admit that we use the term in a bit more colloquial fashion than someone who's a true expert on, on knowledge management or something like that. Mm-hmm. That we tend to view... Uh, knowledge in this book as the, once you've taken things like raw data, which isn't necessarily knowledge in and of itself, and start to process it and analyze it and turn it into something that is um, contributing to our better understanding of the world, whether that's in the sciences or in the social sciences or in the humanities, that's when we think it becomes knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so these, t- these tools that we're talking about are very much contributing to that transformation from raw data and raw data in the world into what we can see as a contribution to the permanent store of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So um, Wikipedia, for instance, Wikipedia isn't just an assembly of facts. Um, it's facts about the world, but together they contribute to the world's knowledge because people have been able to use this rather extraordinarily unpredictable platform of, of Wikipedia. No one predicted when Wikipedia started that it would succeed, right? Like, this is a mad idea that anybody could write an encyclopedia with a bunch of non-experts. Right. But it, it has managed to succeed despite those early expectations um, and despite anybody's ability to predict for it to do so. Um, and it, it's a great example, I think, of e-research because what it says is, we will set up a, a relatively simple infrastructure, which is this, this wiki software, and we'll set up a set of practices and rules and guidelines, which there are a lot of in Wikipedia these days, and we will let people contribute the kinds of um, 
information and facts that they've got, and together they will assemble these uh, you know, this really remarkable store of shared knowledge that moves beyond the individual parts that have gone into it. If you told me, people did say this 15, 20 years ago, and, and it seemed like a mad idea, but it has managed to work anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worked partly because of this internet infrastructure. If you tried to get all those people together in one place and do it, it, it would be too expensive to be able to do um, meaningfully. Now, with um, the last two things we were talking about, um, it comes to, at least in my mind, it comes back to the uh, of the openness and the access that various different kinds of people from academics to non-academics have to research and data. And, and one of the things you do talk about in the book is about openness and access and the importance of openness and access now and the availability of information, but also the, the availability of a, I would like a seat at the table for the public um, in many of these research projects. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really one of the hallmarks of the modern era is this new openness beyond the scientific community. So science has always been about replicability and openness at some level. But in practice, that was limited to a very small group of people. Um, so if you were um, part of the priesthood, let's say, then you could get access to things and, and you could be part of the group sharing those. But increasingly, um, as I said before, those walls are breaking down. And this openness is extending a lot further. So, so now most funders are saying, you can't just write your articles for each other and publish them in closed access journals. You've got to publish them in open access repositories so that people can get access to that information and that knowledge. That, quite frankly, in most cases, the public is paid for because it's, it's paid the taxes that have gone into the grant funding agencies that have been paid for the research. Mm-hmm. Um, so why shouldn't taxpayers be able to read that without having to pay ridiculously high subscription rates to journals? Um, so openness about sharing our results is certainly true, but also ideas about openness of sharing data at an earlier stage so that we can advance science while still giving people the ability to advance their careers. So one of the examples from the book is this project that I was involved in um, when I worked at Indiana called GAME, Genetic Association Information Network. Mm-hmm. And the key idea behind what happened in GAME in the U.S. was that there, there were a lot of researchers studying bunch of different diseases. At that time, I was working with groups studying bipolar disorder and alcoholism, and we've been doing this for about a part of two decades. And we collected lots of data over those decades. Um, we had lots of diagnosis about people. We had lots of blood samples about people. And Gaines said, look, there, there's some science being made by these individual groups, but we suspect that better science could happen faster if we get people to share this data. And so Gaines said, we're going to give people a giant carrot to contribute their data to this initiative, which is um, we'll give them much better genotyping than they're able to get themselves at the time. And uh, it was an order of magnitude bigger than what they'd gotten before. And the exchange for that isn't going to be money. We're not going to pay them for it. Um, We're simply going to give them this much better data than they could get on their own. But we're also not going to give that to them exclusively. So instead of behaving like we might have in the past where you give one person a grant and let them do their own little genotyping and get all their own data for themselves for a period. Now we're going to give the results of that genotyping to everybody in the world on the same day, including the people who originally contributed it. The only um, 
window that they'll have of exclusivity is there'll be a six-month publication window where they'll get the first crack at doing the publications from that data. But at six months and one day, everybody who's had that data from the same from the same moment can start to publish other things as well. So hopefully that will start to enhance and ex ex increase the um, pace of discovery in science. And it was, a, it was a great success in a lot of ways. So it did have lots of people interested in this. It got lots of people to share the data. Um, there were some interesting um, results found, maybe not as many as they'd hoped in the initial instances, but certainly some interesting things came out of it. And it set the path for saying, look, we shouldn't just behave in our own little laboratories. We should start to contribute to bigger efforts that will help advance everything. So I've just been involved in a recent project that's not in the book, but it's, it's more recent than that, um, funded by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to look at these very same issues in the area of dementia research. Mm -hmm. So in dementia research, they have largely been behaving in this, this independent way. You know, we've got our own bits of data, we don't share it largely. Um, and the dementia community started to say, wait a minute, uh, we're not coming up with the answers. We don't really know what causes dementia, although there's been some recent advances in that. We don't really know how to treat it again, although there's been some recent advances. In order to do this better and to really deal with this huge growing problem, we need to share our data, we need to make it more open, and we need to start doing this on a global level so that we can start to address these problems globally. It might mean that some scientists have to you know, give some of their data to other scientists a bit more quickly than they otherwise would have, but the, the issues are so big that it is overall of a benefit to the scientists, and also, if we're careful about how we set up reward systems, that we also give credit to the people who created that data, so it's not actually hurting their career, but helping their career, because they will be seeking contributors mm -hmm. to, these new, to, these, to these new discoveries that are found. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, continue, please. So, so one of the interesting things that we found in that, that that ties back to this whole connection to the public. So in our report, we talk about an interview we did with um, Clive Holmby, who is the uh, one of the people who was responsible for um, something called the Tesco Club Card. Tesco is a supermarket chain in the UK. Right. And the Club Card is a loyalty card that we have at uh, most supermarkets. And the possibilities in supermarket loyalty data are really rather interesting for something like dementia because we know from um, other kinds of research that people who have dementia start to do things like make a smaller range of choices in their life. They, they travel less far, they choose a, a smaller range of things because their memory starts to have difficulties and the, the possibility is that you could detect that in something like supermarket loyalty data because you know what people are buying and you know what they're buying over time. If there was an interesting ethical way to get that data from what you're buying to your medical providers to help them detect early signs of things like dementia, that really opens up radically new possibilities for interventions in something like uh, you know, Alzheimer's. And we don't have the mechanisms in place to do that yet, but it's really tantalizing that it could be that it could be possible to do these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You know, what I, what I wanted to ask you about is with the openness of data now and um, the ability of the public and other various scholars around the world to access data, it seems to have come with a kind of concomitant obsession with data, if, if I'm 
you know, don't want to use the pejorative, but, um, but people expect data, data, data. But what they really mean is data, like big data. And yeah. um, they're not really looking at, I guess, small data, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's certainly been a lot of hype around big data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I, for one, am you know, a bit exhausted with the hype because I've been working so closely <laughs> with big data. Uh, so so I, I tend not to like the word that much these days, although I still use it when I need to. Um, I do think there is a growing obsession with big data. And the the question I think that is really still not answered is um, how can we use these big data to do things that uh, fall more on the good side than on the bad side, right? Because as I, as I sort of intimated a bit earlier, there's all these worries about big data and in, incursions in our privacy and the fact that um, you know, Google knows exactly where you are at all times because you carry your Android phone around with you, and so they, they can track all your movements. And the question of well, what do we do with that, or whether whether Target knows that your teenage daughter is pregnant before you do, which is what, you know a famous case a few years ago. Um, those are the worries about big data. One of the things that I've been pressing for recently, and we're putting into proposals about this shortly, is how can we start to open up the conversation to be more toward what are, the, what are the positive changes we can make with big data? How can we um, increase human welfare? How can we increase the social good by using big data approaches? We had a workshop for a number of people from both the developing and developing world at the Bellagio Center, that's a um, funded by the Rockefeller um, Foundation in mm-hmm. Italy about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And the, the theme behind that meeting was big data for the social good. So what can you do with big data that will actually make people's lives better, that will make people um, happier and healthier, not just contribute to the economy, not just make people more money, but actually make people's lives more worth living. And there's uh, lots of interesting moves in that direction. So uh, when you think about things like um, transport data in cities, there's been a lot of moves toward bringing transport data together. So people like the mayor of London, uh, some colleagues of mine at UCL have been working a lot with the mayor of London's office to build visualization tools so that the mayor's office can start to see exactly what's happening with traffic all around the city and how pollution is changing based on sensor data and so forth. How can we use that not just to you know improve the economy, but also to make people's lives better, to make them breathe less bad air, to, to move them more quickly from their places of employment to home so that they're spending less time in traffic, how can we really use that to improve people's quality of life? Well, that's, that's an interesting challenge and one that I think most people would be in favor of is improving quality of life by using big data, not just by not just about improving companies' bottom lines using it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of this, the book, um, the, the topic is so relevant to what's going on now in academia and outside of academia as well. And I'm wondering, because one of the things that we've instituted here on New Books and Technology is what we like to call the elevator pitch, if you will. Um, So if you had one minute and somebody was just tuning in now to 
the conversation we're having. If you had one minute to tell them what your book is about, why they should, you know, read it, either go buy it um, and have it on their Kindle or, or whatever the case may be, or go to the library and read it, what would you tell them? So what we deal with in this book is a change that everybody sort of knows is going on, right? We all know that the internet is changing the ways we interact with each other, changing the ways we do things. But up until what we've done here, there's been little evidence other than anecdotal evidence for that. What we've done in this book is systematic evidence looking at different cases from across the different domains, from the sciences, the social sciences, the humanities, um, that show quite consistently and quite, I think, convincingly that once you start to use computers and computer algorithms to undertake um, investigations into the world and into knowledge and human behavior, you can start to know completely new kinds of things that were not possible without that. And, and this isn't just hype in a, in a wired magazine sort of sense that says, you know, everything will change. We've got good evidence for that in this, that there is empirical evidence that shows these changes are taking place and that knowledge is advancing more rapidly using technological means. Great. That sounds good to me. So what's next for you? Or you both, so, perhaps. So, so uh, I, I've mentioned a little bit, we've been doing this work in things like dementia research. Um, we've got a, a new project that we're developing right now about bees, actually, um, and how one can use bee data to understand things not just about the economy, but also about the environment and so forth. And uh, also some other areas of, of digital transformation. Um, I've got a potential project about um, changes in uh, the healthcare sector and how computer, um, how the technology, how technologies are changing the way work is done and so forth in, in the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my long-term interests have always been about uh, one simple topic, which is this. When you've got people who have been doing things in an analog way and that switches to digital, what does that mean for the ways that they work, behave, and interact? Mm -hmm. that, that's my simple question. So, so I mentioned before the study I did with marine biologists. Um, I also talked about my whale study, because it's quite fun, and it, I think it illustrates this point. So what I was looking at with the marine biologists is if, if you study whales or dolphins, um, they've got this thing called photo identification. And you can take a picture of a humpback whale's tail, and it's like a human fingerprint. You can identify that single whale um, at a different point in the ocean 10 years later, 20 years later, because he's got this or he or she has this distinctive pattern on their tail. And I became interested in what they were doing because in a very short period of time, between 2002 and 2003, they switched from taking these pictures with film cameras to doing it with digital cameras. Mm -hmm. So they switched from analog film to digital cameras. And my interest in that was, so what does this mean? Does this actually change anything or does it just, you know, a bit of a, a, an aesthetic change? And what I found was that it fundamentally changed a lot of things about the science. It, not, it wasn't as simple as simply taking off your film camera and putting your digital camera onto the same lens and doing exactly what you've done before. It, it, it changed who was involved in the science because you know, there's a lot of volunteers in this space and there was less for them to do because you needed more technical skill to work with digital cameras. 
and you need to suddenly hire database developers in order, instead of just having people putting slides into the plastic sleeves. Um, now, when you went out and took pictures of whales on a long day, you had to come back and rather than just dropping a canister of film into a bag and sending it off to a lab, you spend hours each evening categorizing and organizing your pictures and downloading them and backing them up. Mm-hmm. So it really changed dramatically what people were doing, but also opened up new possibilities for doing things like answering a very basic question. How many humpback whales live in the Pacific Ocean? Before the digital era, nobody could answer that individually. They could only tell you how many humpbacks they studied in their little area. But this splash project we talk about in the book says, look, we can, together with 500 other scientists around the Pacific Rim, share data to central locations and then start to answer this question that now they know, you know something like 15 or 20,000 humpback whales live in the Pacific Ocean. That is a change that brings a new answer to science based on this change from analog to digital that really opened up new possibilities for them. So that's really what drives me. It's when you take analog things and change them to digital, what does that mean? And that's what I continue to look at just as new areas become digitized and, and start to engage with digital technologies. What does that mean for them? Great. So where can people find more writings from you? So um, it, the easiest place is on my website. Um, if you go to the OAI and look for my name on there, uh, or, or if you have links on your podcast, feel free to put that on. Okay. Um, or my Google Scholar page is, is a good place to look. And then uh, if people find something that they know I've written that a full copy is available because it's in some subscription, just send me an email and I'll be happy to send one of my original copies. Great. So the book is Knowledge Machines, Digital Transformations of the Sciences and Humanities. And we've had Eric T. Meyer on who co-wrote this book with Ralph Schroeder. And we thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you, Jasmine. I've enjoyed it. No problem. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. Thank you.